Hello and welcome to another installment of Bar Talk Podcast, bringing you everything you need to know about law via discussions, interviews, and news updates. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Omaha Bar Association Bar Talk Podcast. I am OBA Executive Director Dave Summers, and I'm here today with Troy Johnson, the Director of Creighton Law Library. Good morning. Thank thank you. Um, Troy, before we go any further, just give me some clarification. I call it Creighton Law Library. That's that's a term I use, but it's it's officially the Klutznik Law it's Library. It's the Klutznik Law Library, and then it's the McGrath North Research Center. So we actually have a dual name okay. on it. Okay. Yes. And there's not one portion that's the research center and one portion that's the law library. They are the same. Correct. Okay. Correct. Good to know. And what is the history on when it became the Klutznik Law Library? When did it, when did um, the research part come in? The best of my, here's about, so in 1998 we had the major renovation because we used to be one floor Mm -hmm. and in 98 they dropped the staircase because you know the level on you were you're on is parking was parking garage. That's what Donna said. Yeah. Okay. So they renovated the parking garage. My understanding, the problem is I started in 2000. Mm -hmm. So this was, I was here in history and didn't specifically live through it. Um, My understanding is it was Klutznik before that renovation and when they did the 98 renovation and dropped the other level, that's where they added in the McGrath North name to it. Got and it. then that was the really big, added the second floor to the library renovation, uh, did the lower level. Okay. That's, that's good history. That's interesting. Right. Troy, could you give us some of the scope of what the law library does here, both for students, for the public, and for attorneys in practice? Sure. Uh, So our goal is to have a complete collection for faculty, students, and the general public to be able to, you know, any research that you would need to do as a law student, uh, that we would have the materials available that you could do that, and that that our faculty could do scholarship and uh, uh, do primary research. And so those, that's our absolute central mission. And then we also want to support the local bar and local, uh, just general public patrons that might have legal needs. And we also buy materials specific to those uh, audiences. So for example, for the local bar, we purchase a Westlaw for Patrons account that uh, uh, the student Westlaw accounts actually have license limitations on them uh, that technically they're not supposed to be allowed in a use for a work setting. The Westlaw for Patrons one, if a local attorney comes in and says, I'm working for a firm, this is for a client, I have no license restrictions, that's completely what it was designed for them to use and we're not bending any rules to say you as a firm member can sit down and use that. Um, And those resources are, especially that Westlaw for Patrons is a very expensive resource for us. So um, uh, if if our sole mission was we were just saying let's only help faculty, only help students, that would be something we would probably not purchase at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but we've specifically purchasing it to, to provide that tool for the local public or for the local attorneys that, that would, can use that tool. And I've, I've been through the stacks a few times myself and seen um, a whole bunch of NOLO um, books as well for the public probably. Correct, yeah, yeah, that's one of our major publications that we uh, get is the NOLA ones because they do a lot of real rubber meets the road. They're actually good publications for attorneys too because oddly there's this weird in research there's a weird little gap between 
up at the appellate level, like what is the law? That's actually oddly the easiest to find. The how do I file this document? How do I do this specific thing? There's times where when you're in the statutes and the court rules and the pieces, you almost can't find it. And oddly, you'll go to a NOLO thing and they'll say, oh, here's the little piece where you have to jump that. And so oddly, you know, some people will you know, turn their nose up at NOLO press of, oh, that's for pro se's. And well, one, it's written by attorneys. They're, they're considered a good publisher. But I, I've had them where it's like that's the sole source for certain piece of information. So I encourage attorneys not to shy away from looking at those. Absolutely. Um, do you have any estimate on the number of attorney patrons and, and members of the public patrons that, that come through the door in a given year? Uh, my, my, we, we, don't take, uh, we don't have specific statistics on it. Um, uh, because a lot of our collection doesn't uh, circulate, like multi-volume sets don't, you know, some libraries could just go, hey, let's look at our circulation numbers and see what actually circulates. Uh, because so many of our items don't circulate, th those numbers, I could come up with some circ numbers, but they don't tell the full story. Um, my best guess is that we have consistently maybe around 120 attorneys that uh, are in and out over a one-year period. Mm -hmm. uh, and now on a attorneys that I see monthly, there's maybe 25 that I can say, I'm going to see you every single month that right. you're going to be in here, and I see you all the time. And then it broadens up if it's people that I see them every couple months or when they have a unique research situation come up. Mm -hmm. on, on the unique research, I'm sure you have some great stories of, of people that have come to you, attorneys or members of the public, with mm -hmm. questions, with things that they're looking for that have to be, it has to run the gamut. I mean, there has to be really some wild stories on what they're looking for and what you guys have been able to find for them. Yes, no, we get, it's, uh, uh, yeah, and every law library has their kind of odd patron question, but then we have, so on a, on a more, uh, uh, standard for attorneys one, here's an interesting thing when it came up, uh, some of the school board items, there were, there was some fight over some of the school districts and different parties in town were uh, getting the law firms on board to assist them from the opposing sides. So I'd have an attorney come in and go, I need the history on this education law in Nebraska and as I'm working with them, I realize like, oh, this is probably coming up because of what I've been seeing in the news about all the school districts, and that's why you're researching it. Well, then an hour later, here comes the other law firm in from the opposing side looking at it. So you literally realize like both sides are in here looking for both sides of this item. And because, <clears throat> excuse me, it was historical and people needed like, when did the statute start and what was the logic behind it and all that, we had those resources. And so you see those pieces. Absolutely. Um, with the, there's the clinic as well here at, at Creighton, and I suppose the law library does work with them as these students are trying to uh, research everything, they're coming in and, and you're working with the, the clinic as well? Correct. Oh, and we definitely support those students. Oddly, um, I mean, sometimes I get a reference question where I, I, you know, I realize like, oh, you, this student is doing this for the clinic. Um, but since the students have their general base level of resources and then training on how to use them, uh, a lot of times they're just moving forward and I don't, there's a lot of questions that are happening that they're researching that we just never see. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, we train them up, got them up to speed, made sure they have the resources available. Um, uh, uh, 
but yes, there are questions that come through where I realize, oh, this is definitely a clinic question. Actually, the NOLOs come up there again because the clinic students will come over and say, I can't find this little detail that, that's the rubber meets the road. What do I need to do on this? And, uh, and then we're finding that little, that little separation piece. Absolutely. Uh, Troy, can you give us some of your history, how you got to the directorship you are in now and, and previously? Sure, sure. Um, so uh, I started, uh, I have a dual degree. I have a, a, a JD and I have a master's of library science. Uh, different librarians will get those in different orders, you know, depending on how things work with their life. I actually had uh, done law school first and my wife uh, had historically worked in libraries and so she actually worked at the University of Nebraska College of Law uh, as a staff member there. And because uh, she would get invited to like staff parties as one of the library staff, I, I made an extra close connection with the librarians because you know I'd literally meet them in social settings. And so they encouraged me to, uh, they were said, hey Troy, have you ever considered library school to tie with your law degree? And uh, I was a 97 graduate, and so the internet was uh, very much a brand new thing. It was basically one year old to the general public. So I'm seeing this new information world opening up. I'm finishing law school, and I thought, yeah, it'd be interesting to get into librarianship, especially at this time when we're doing this online shift. Uh, so I went to, I uh, applied and got accepted to University of Missouri, Columbia. Um, I actually. Uh, uh, went down there and attended in person. Now they have, if you went today, if you went to University of Missouri Columbia, you could take almost all the courses online. Uh, but at the time, uh, you need to go down there. But there was also another benefit to that. I was able to get a job as a research assistant. So I taught undergraduate students a research class, and then I also worked reference. Uh, but the big advantage of that is they gave me tuition remission. So I didn't have to pay for school, which was huge because I was coming out of law school and to avoid additional debt. And the other great thing is I got specific experience working reference and I got specific teaching experience. And so that was great. When I started looking for my first jobs, I can literally say, hey, I have been teaching. I've, I've got some reference experience. So even though I was very much brand new to the profession, I had some good experience. So I worked there. My first professional job uh, was in, at Valparaiso University in Northwest Indiana. Uh, so applied there, went and worked there, uh, and then two years into working there, uh, the job opened up at Creighton. And uh, my wife grew up in the Omaha area, so this was her home. And then uh, I was a military dependent, and so uh, that's how I'd end up in the Omaha area was because of Offutt. Mm -hmm. But I'd gone to undergraduate at UNO, I had my law degree from UNL, so I had close Nebraska ties. So when the Creighton position opened up, I said I'd really like to apply there. Uh, I, I knew I wanted to be back in Omaha and I knew Creighton was a good school, uh, so I applied. It was a little bit of a bummer. I didn't want to, leaving Valpo only after two years, you know, they were, they had given me a good first job. I'd done a lot of training there. I had, I'd, I'd wanted to give them a little more time, but the problem is the way these law library jobs open up, when one fills, it could be a decade before one opens again. Sure. So it was, it was, it would be difficult to pass it up. Uh, because I might not have been able to get here, uh, maybe ever, you know, depending on what jobs opened up. Uh, so then in 2000, I moved here, and I've been working at Creighton since 2000. And uh, um, I was a reference librarian, and the electronic services librarian was my uh, dual titles. And I teach a legal research class uh, and advanced legal research. And uh, I've done that uh, since I started. And then uh, Kay Andrus was the director of the law library until t uh, 2017. 
And then he retired last year, and the dean appointed me interim director uh, uh, after Kay left. Okay. Now, you talked about your role as elect, uh, electronic reference, um, and that has certainly changed since mm -hmm. 2000, mm -hmm. since 97, all that time period. Um, wh where, do you see, where do you see it now compared to where it was? I mean, it's just night and day probably, right? Yeah, um, we're continuing to, there's just the continuing shift to more and more items electronic, and almost all of our legal materials that we use are available electronically now. So now it's almost a format choice of what items do you want in what format. Um, unfortunately, here's one of the myth items. Unfortunately, the electronic resources, a lot of people would think, oh, you don't have to print the books. They should be cheaper, but almost across the board, the electronic resources are more expensive. Mm -hmm. And part of the reason for that is I think people have a misunderstanding. If we just go to like a popular book, say a Stephen King hardcover book comes out, only like one or two dollars of that book is actually the printing and the shipping and get it in the bookstore. Almost all of the money of like a $20 hardcover is paying the publisher, paying the author, paying the editor. Mm -hmm. And when you go electronic, all of none of those are removed. You're still, you know, paying the publisher, editor, author, and all those. So when you're like, if you took that Stephen King book, make it electronic, uh, you know, the general public thinks, oh, it must be like $15 to make that, that you know, heavy hardcover book with a thing. Well, no, that's like $2 of the price. So when you switch it to electronic, really all the money's still on the table. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and then because they have different sales ways to move them and, and the electronic kind of messes with historically how the market worked, the publishers tend to up the price to make sure that they're bringing in the money to compensate. So unfortunately, across the board, as I purchase electronic items, my expenses have gone up and not down. See, that's interesting. And I see that I'm an ABA member. I go on the ABA store uh, and look at, at the latest books published by the ABA publisher. And it's $135 for you know a practice manual, something that's maybe not even that deep. It's, it's a 300-page paperback, and it's $135 for electronic, $135 for the book itself. And I, I couldn't understand that, but it makes sense that they need to make sure that they're paying for the, the whole publication costs, not just the printing costs and the authorship and all that. Correct. So. And then when you get into the legal market, so for example, one of those practice aids, we sell a Stephen King book, we have a market of a million plus people. If we have you know uh, unfair competition in Nebraska, your market is 60 people and so the problem is you know uh, a professional attorney puts together work and maybe spends let's say, say they spend a year on a book well an attorney's time for a year is a you know sizable expense and now we're going to divide that among 60 people and then you end up with a very large cost on the book uh, to divide that out absolutely so uh, and and there are many um, rows of books that I've seen here personally that are are those nuts and bolts um, Nebraska practice manuals and things like that that, that are invaluable really um, to the public uh, some of them may be listed if they're NSBA CLE they're listed on the NSBA site if you remember yeah. but I mean it goes back uh, quite a ways and just in one one hour setting you can really find a lot that's helpful yeah we try to have we have a, a comprehensive Nebraska collection so 
if an item is legal and it's Nebraska, if we can purchase it, we do it. And, and that we try to purchase every single item. Uh, so in Nebraska, we, you know, we, the attempt is to have a comprehensive collection. And for example, like I have the Nebraska, uh, the laws all the way back, the LBs, and they go right back into the territorial laws. And the territorial ones are even, they're not even in the rare book room, they're just on the shelf. So any person can walk up, move all the way back to like 1870 and have laws of Nebraska when you open it up. We're not even a state yet, it just says territory of Nebraska, and then we go forward from there. Yeah. Um, you talked about the rare book room. Let, let's talk about that for a second. Sure. What What is in the rare book room? I, I see it um, in the main um, kind of sitting area here, um, but I've never gotten back there. What's in there? Sure. Um, so our understanding, it's actually, there's a little bit of a little bit of mystery of how we've received some of the items that were in the rare book room. Uh, we have a World Herald article from the 1930s that gave a little background where they interviewed the librarians at the time and uh, uh, discussed it a little. But some of our understanding is that um, there's an odd connection here to like a PBS show, Downton Abbey. In Downton Abbey, they, uh, it's, it's set in early 1900s and one thing that's happening is the big landed estates in Europe uh, are starting to break up because the uh, society's changing, uh, uh, social structures changing, you have these big landed manors that can't support themselves anymore. Well, they had some huge libraries in them and to, and to raise money, they uh, were literally breaking up some of these manors and they would sell these collections and Americans would go over and buy British libraries and of course, because these were books in landed manors, we're in 1900, but they would have books two, three, four hundred years old in their collection. Um, and our understanding is that there were some people from Creighton that went over and did purchases uh, from some of these items. So unfortunately, there's some signatures and names in the books, but we haven't been able to specifically tie. It would be so interesting to, to be able to say, oh, it came from this estate mm -hmm. and, and tie items back. Um, uh, so. Uh, uh, we receive some items that way. We also have some cuneiform tablets that are literally dated like 3000 BC. Wow. And so um, it's just absolutely amazing to think we have items sitting in the rare book room that, uh, you know, if you were at the year zero, they were already 2000 years old yeah. uh, kind of item. And, and really those are kind of a mystery too of uh, when those came in, but we believe those got kind of purchased maybe in that same trip. We think the person that had gone over and done the Europe per, uh, purchase had maybe done like a little uh, travel to Middle, Middle East, you know, go to something like Egypt. And, and, and uh, there's some indications there's, a, we have the actual cuneiform tablets that are historical, but there's also completely a uh, souvenir piece of the Code of uh, Hammurabi mm -hmm. uh, that's clearly just meant to sell to tourists. And that's with those, and we're, we're pretty sure the person that bought the cuneiform tablets had picked that up on the same trip. And there's a little bit of indications that, you know, that was maybe from 1920, just from the style and make of it. And so, I mean, but we're making some guesses on it, uh, but we have those. Uh, so, but um, in, uh, when we did the renovation in 1998, uh, we had the rare book room made so that we could actually segregate these materials and get them in a proper air-conditioned, controlled environment. Mm -hmm. So our rare book room uh, does have climate control. Uh, the design of it is there's a front display case that we can put items out, uh, people can look at them, and then if you go back in the rare book room, they, literally the room opens into that case. So all of the air in the display case and the back rare book room is all climate controlled. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, so we have the items back there. 
uh, some of the pieces we have, we have a Justinian's Institute, which is like from 1500. Um, uh, we have a Blackstone's Commentaries, uh, which were the major uh, works of, you know, in the early, late 1800s, early 1900s, law school was reading Blackstone's Commentaries. I mean, it's, it's the, the kind of urban legend with Abraham Lincoln is that he found a copy of Blackstone's Commentaries in a barrel uh, that had some supply shipping and he read those. Um, we have a first edition of the uh, Blackstone's Commentaries and to raise money, uh, so it, it's in, in America, it's like 1777 and somebody's gonna put out a set of the Blackstone's Commentaries. Now the problem is you don't wanna print uh, 500 copies and then hope you have a market. So what you would do back then is you'd go to people ahead of time and say, do you want one? And pay me up front for Blackstone's commentaries. And so they literally would do it kind of on a subscription model mm -hmm. of, of buy a subscription and then when we have 500 orders and they're prepaid, now I can print like 800 copies knowing I have 500 pre-sold and then I'll print extras that I can sell because then people will be seeing like, oh, I see Joe bought one, I'd like a copy. Well, in the, in the uh, first American edition of Blackstone, there's a subscribers list that literally shows the people that bought that. Well, it's really a who's who of the country because you don't have, if it's 1770 in the US and you're buying Blackstone's commentaries, you're somebody, you have money. Right. You know, no just Joe Public is buying that. So actually the very first name on the list is John Adams, attorney. <laughs> and at the time, he's not president it's just John Adams, an attorney at Boston, right. but a future president of the United States is the first on the subscription list. And as you go through the list, it's just a who's who of major American figures at the time that were buying a Blackstone's commentary. There's actually an interesting, right on the first page, there is a member of the uh, Royal, uh, uh, the UK military, uh, the British Army. He's in the British Army. He's stationed in the US because we're still a colony. Uh, and he's an artillery man, and then he's also a lawyer. Uh, and he actually wrote a book. He was, it was the first treatise on uh, torture in war. And that was written in the US by a British uh, attorney being stationed here as part of the, the UK uh, army. And, uh, and then he, well, he was here in the US, bought a copy of the Blackstones as a subscriber. So then he's listed in that subscriber list. Yeah. Uh, so, and actually here, I can even make another little tie-in with that book of the item. So that torture book that was written, uh, uh, well, it's really a uh, laws of war. It's mm -hmm. a law of war book to better state it, but torture's a big component of it. And, and, and it actually became quite back in, uh, uh, being read again because of the Iraq, you know, Iraq war and uh, waterboarding and all those items. So that book was actually relevant and being looked at again, even though it was written in 1770. Um, but we have that in an electronic database. We have a, uh, oh, this is bad, I'm gonna forget the, uh, but basically we have, we have databases that have historical works in them. Mm -hmm. And um, it used to be, if you went back 50 years, a book like that, oh, well, Harvard would have it, Yale would have it, Stanford would have it. Well, uh, uh, Harvard has digitized and commercial publishers have gone in digitized and then sell and make access available to those. And I actually think, I actually pulled up that Law of War book and had looked at it, and I believe it had like a Harvard imprint in the front. So, but the nice thing is now in 2018, you can walk into Creighton Law Library and view that item where 50 years ago it would have been, well, Harvard has it. Right. And now I can say, oh, if you want to read that, yeah, here it is, You're, you can take a look at it. 
And so the depth, the depth that the standard law library can have is, is much deeper. Uh, I mean, we can literally compete. It gets a lot harder uh, uh, for Harvard to say, oh, here's something we have that you don't. Now they still, I, I guarantee if we went to Harvard Law Library up against ours, they could come up with some items that we just don't have access to. Now on the flip side, if you need to do a Nebraska legislative history, uh, we have it and Harvard doesn't. <laughs> yeah, uh, right, right. There's, you know, there's three places, Unicameral, UNL, and Creighton. If you're not at one of those three places, uh, you effectively can't do a legislative history from like before the 1990s. A very current one is starting to go online and everyone has access. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but even they're limited. There's items they'd have to come to us for. And, and going forward, into the future in our crystal ball here. Uh, where do you see the future for the law library here, law libraries in general, um, with Google Scholar, with um, everyone just pulling up their smartphones? Um, wh wh where's the place for the law library in the future? Well, libraries have always been, um, are, one concept that libraries do is also, we're somewhat of a buying pool and we're also, the place where you can get everything. Um, so if you go down to an individual level, an individual level with an unlimited budget can be, well, I'll just purchase all these different online items. And if you had unlimited funds, you can just go out there, buy all the items, and you know, well, and even historically, you know, a large firm could would have a library. They would buy all the materials and they would say, we have a library, and now we've moved electronic, you can purchase all those. Now the problem is how much can an individual purchase? And especially when you point out things like, you know, one 300 page book can be $150. And actually in the legal market, that's even uh, inexpensive. Uh, you start getting the multi-volume sets, three, $4,000 for a set uh, is not unheard of. And um, uh, uh, there's a lot of, actually more, like more of an average price for treatises is up around $600 is the start piece. So oddly, when I, uh, from a librarian perspective, when I hear illegal items 135, I'm like, oh, that's a cheap one. That's, like, <laughs> that's a, you know, it's almost free, uh, you know. But, but the problem is when you flip to an individual level, that's extremely expensive. So the other item we can do is bring together and try to have all the materials so it's got a larger scope than an individual be able to purchase. The other thing is somebody making sure that there's the historical items so that when you do have to look back uh, that those are available. And so um, I kind of just think of it as a uh, picture. If you drew a circle and the circle is like all the information that exists in the world. Well, even a library can't have that. That's a, that's a big circle. Um, uh, but then if you could draw like what can an individual buy you're much smaller in there and the library can always be a bigger piece. Mm -hmm. And even actually, if you drew like a circle, so we have the giant circle of everything, all knowledge, mm -hmm. and then we're like, what can you get on Google with your computer? That's even kind of small computer, uh, or a small circle in there. Now oddly, um, if somebody has one book that's not on Google and they have a laptop with Google, that person actually has more than Google because you're like, hey, this book is not on there. So I can get to this book. And you know, so in a library setting, I can get to everything on the free internet plus the materials that aren't there. Right. So. And I, I guess I raised the question because I, I'm concerned, I have a concern that there are solo small firm practitioners that have limited budget and they may be re too reliant on 
free um, or, or limited um, resources that they can access on their internet, on their computer, um, without necessarily coming in here to the law library and um, finding those, those resources that didn't pop up on their Google search results. And um, using the law library as a resource, because they don't have the funds to purchase the $6,000 sets, um, they, they really should be in here. They should be interacting with the, the law library staff um, to make sure that their research is complete. And I just, I, I know that, you know, Westlaw on private um, contract and, and case maker and everything like that um, is out there, but y'all have a lot more here than necessarily they're getting in, in their law firm. Correct. Now another piece of that, well actually in some ways Google Scholar is a positive for us because uh, a, an attorney can get on Google Scholar and see, oh here's an article in Harvard Law Review uh, from a certain year and they at least now know it exists. So um, if they can't find it online, then they can come to us and say, hey I, f I found this on Google Scholar, can you help me get it? Mm -hmm. um, now some of the biggest uh, uh, law schools, Harvard, Yale, have gone on this move of let's try to make uh, like all our law, all law reviews publicly available. And so those, uh, you'll sometimes run a search and then uh, you find a citation and it's completely free online and you can get those articles. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, there are definitely articles that come up that just aren't available uh, on the free internet. And then, uh, but Google Scholar lets you know they exist, and, but if an attorney contacts us and it's like, I need to get this article, uh, we can connect them up with it. Um, we have, there's a publisher called Hein Online, um, and uh, uh, so the history on Hein is they actually used to provide the journal, the, they dealt in the paper distribution of the law reviews. And because uh, what they would do is it was hard for libraries, if I wanted to buy all the law reviews, I had to go out and say, okay, Stanford, I want to purchase the law review. Well, Hein would say, hey, we went out, we're working with all the law schools to collect them you just come to us, get a subscription, and then we'll provide you all of the law reviews. And then as a library, you can have one vendor, us, and we collect them. Well, Hein, because they had all of the uh, journals uh, in, the, in the late 90s, decided let's start to digitize these. And I was shocked that Lexis or Westlaw didn't step in and go, why don't we digitize? And I think part of their thinking was, well, we have everything from like mid-90s on was starting to be created electronic. And they're like, well, we have the current stuff. And, you know, uh, Hein only has the old items. The problem is you forget it's this long tail concept. Yes, people want the new, but there's times you're researching tort law and you're like, I need the article. Why was this concept even made? Well, the problem is that article's from 1957. And then that's not on Lexis. It's not on Westlaw. So Hein Online has scanned all those, made them available, and we have a subscription to that. So we pretty much have electronic, all of the major journals back to volume one uh, because of our subscription with uh, Hein. Mm -hmm. uh, we also have a bar journal collection that's on Hein. Uh, so if people come in uh, and, and want to research. And do you have any round numbers on um, numbers in the collection, pa paper, copy, volumes, or periodicals? or? What, what, I'm not sure what the right term here is, you know, X million paper volumes and X million electronic document volumes. I'm not sure if, I'm not using yeah. the right term here, but Here's how large the is the collection? Um, it's, it's hundreds of thousands of titles in print. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then from the legal end of it, I mean, we have all American case law. 
I mean, pretty much all American case law that's been distributed, we have. Uh, and so uh, that we don't, it's somewhat, I mean, we, we, do t we, uh, we do turn in volume counts into the ABA. And so, you know, I've seen the number of in the hundreds of thousands, but, you know, from the law end, it's more just try to be comprehensive. And especially like federal, when you're Supreme Court, Court of Appeals, it's just, you get everything that's been published. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we have a complete uh, American collection. I know that our politicians love to print out for visual display, right? This is how many pages this bill was and everything like that. I mean, printing out every single page that, that Creighton Law Library has access to, <laughs> it, would, it would be enormous. It would cover yeah. this entire state, I brought. Actually, you know, here's the other thing. So the public laws are printed in the uh, statutes at large. And I have the statutes in large at print. And so I can walk back and show you every law that Congress has passed in print from like, uh, it's actually back to the 1800s. Um, uh, but there were printing changes of how they did things. So if you wanted to maybe, if I just want to be accurate and not be running into historically how they printed, maybe if I said, let's look from 1900 on. But if I showed you the shelves where it's every public law that Congress has passed from 1900 on, Yes, it's several shelves. I mean, it's several stacks, but it's not, it's not huge. Like you could fit it in a uh, one wall in a small bedroom. Um, so it's also not this like, people talk about, oh, there's so much law you could never wrap your head around it. I'm like, that's everything Congress has done in the 20th century, and it's really not that big. Um, uh, the CFR, the Code of Federal Regulations, is another one that there's always the talk of how many regulations there are. And yes, there's quite a few, but if you walk to the library, it's one, uh, you know, one six foot shelf, uh, uh, you know, you very much can wrap. Uh, in fact, I, for uh, my class this year for legal research, I took every regulation, put them on carts, and I took them to class. Now, that did take two full library carts, <laughs> but one person, um, well, and, and one person trying to pull two carts was just difficult, but, um, I mean, I was able to transport to class all of the regs. And then when you actually break them down by section and say, okay, now I'm just, let's just pull out all the books that maybe do food and drug, or food and drug laws, and I stack them up. Um, you know, it was like uh, uh, eight volumes. And when you start thinking of, well, geez, I want my food to be safe, and, you know, and especially with food and drug, you know, uh, I'm actually shocked when you set the food and drug volumes out I'd actually argue, shouldn't they be bigger than that? You all maybe get worried the other way. You're like, what, does that really cover all the food safety? Is that enough to make sure everything I eat, drink, and consume is safe? Mm -hmm. And in, in that sense, it's, it's a kind of small. <laughs> Talking about some other fun um, collections here, I, I see that there's actually a lot of law-related DVDs, a great collection here. Is that, is that something that that uh, attorneys can check out, or do we have uh, to watch it here at the law library? Yes, How does that if, work? if uh, uh, Omaha, uh, attorneys in the Nebraska bar that are in the area of the law school qualify for a, a guest card, mm -hmm. and those people do have checkout privileges, and I'm, I'm, I'm almost positive that uh, the DVD collection is allowed in their checkout, and those are a three-day checkout, and um, so, and a little bit of history on that collection, because some people may look and go, um, what's the purpose of the, you know, buying popular movies with a legal tie-in? 
Well, one, one reason we have some of the titles is there were some professors that were actively using parts of those movies in class to demonstrate a legal concept. Right. And so there were, there were maybe 20 movies that we had from that component, and that was kind of the heart of the collection. Um, but then beyond that, uh, there are a lot of movies that get referenced in popular culture. Uh, for example, well, this one's a little historical, but like 12 Angry Men, which is about, uh, was originally a play, then became a movie, and and it, you know it's really it, the the play is a critical look at how the jury system works, uh, but done in a fictional setting. Um, well, tons of court cases will reference Twelve Angry Men, and so it's actually nice that one of our students, if they're if they see that come up a bunch of times in cases, uh, that they can actually go and watch the movie. Now I've got to admit uh, I've never actually watched Twelve Angry Men, but. I'm educated, when I was in junior high, we actually read the short story, or we read the play. Mm -hmm. And so I, I read the play and was exposed to it, so I was at least familiar with it and had read through it. And I actually found it very captivating. It, it really drew my interest, and when I think back on that, you know, I read it like in seventh grade. I had no idea I'd be in law. Um, uh, but I just, uh, that was of, of, like actually of things I read in seventh grade, I probably could only list three things that I definitively read, and 12 Angry Men was one that come to mind. So to me, it's odd how much of an impression it had, but I've been glad I had that exposure because then when I see references to it, I, I know the significance of the piece and why people reference it. And I've seen clips, I think Henry Fonda's in it. Mm -hmm. I think I've seen just you know two minute clips from the movie, uh, which, and then I was able to draw back to the fact I read it. Um, but. Uh, uh, I really should see it at some point, but but that's one like I encourage people. You you see some of those popular ones, and then when judges and others make references, you actually have that experience and actually understand some of the nuances of what are they referencing when they use that concept. Absolutely, and I know that we uh, as the OBA ha used a bunch of clips. Um, Ron Krauss did our ethics part of our ethics presentation either last year or the year before, and he used a lot of those clips along with. Um, Judge Gerard, uh, and so I, I know that we we like to use it too to um, in our CLEs to um, talk about topics, and so I, I'm just I'm very happy to see that collection there. I need I need to check out more of those because I too am short on some of those uh, classics like Twelve Angry Men, which I believe I have the DVD at home and it's still in the wrapper. So. <laughs> Is there anything I, that I, I missed on there, the law library that you'd like to sure sure lay out there for the public? Um, uh, I did want to comment to the definitely to the to the Nebraska bar members, Omaha attorneys, mm -hmm. uh, to please come in and make use of the library. And I would just want to point out, I mean, uh, you know, I, we initially discussed some that we had the West offer patrons, uh, but uh, the other thing conceptually we have is because of our licenses, you know, we would love to be able to purchase distance access for people so that they could be at their desktop and access the items. Unfortunately, the publishers raise the price even higher to do those, and especially, now the problem is, I would love to have access for alumni, but the publishers also see that if I buy access for the alumni, they see that as losing a customer, so they make the price really high. But here's the nice thing, if somebody walks in the door of the law library, I can pretty much get them access to every single item we have um, uh, without violating any licenses. Because my license allows me that if they're physically in the law library, I can sit them down at a computer 
and, and they can access the items. Now, for example, like our students have individual logins to Westlaw and Lexus, and those I can't give out to members of the public, um, but you know, I have the databases available that if you come in-house, and you know, we have legislative history ones, we have all the legal journals, uh, but basically, if you walk in, you can get the same access as a student has uh, and, and get to pretty much all the items. There is a very slim subset of items that I couldn't get you access to that only student and faculty have access to. But I truly believe that is, it's, it's like a, a, a handful of items. And it's, it's almost a minority, to the point of, I can't even really specifically list one of a significant source that if you walked in the door, I could say, oh, the student can use it, but you couldn't as a local attorney. Mm -hmm. So I just encourage people to come in because you know, I can get them to the full collection. And I think there's a big problem of the, uh, uh, there's a thing of you don't know what you don't know. So if you don't come in and kind of ask what's there, you don't know that you're missing it. So I encourage people to ask. Now here's one piece we can do from the distance. Uh, on our website, we have an email that goes to our, uh, the reference. And so we call it, it starts out, it's law ref, and the full address, it's lawref at list.creighton.edu. Um, but if you just go to Google, put in Creighton Law Library, and go on our website, that address is very prominent, so people could find it uh, easily. Mm -hmm. um, but when you email that address, the email goes to every one of our reference librarians. And then we have a protocol where uh, uh, someone's officially on duty over certain times to be the lead person. Mm -hmm. um, but even if you're not the person on duty, we all kind of take note of the questions that come in. And I'll do things like if a question comes in and I'm like, oh, I've helped somebody with that before. I'll know that one of my colleagues is on and I'll email them and say, hey, when I did this before, please check this resource and I'll give them tips to speed up items. Mm -hmm. um, and so the nice thing is when you email that, you're kind of getting six experienced people looking at your question. And so you're getting a lot of diversity there. And uh, um, I would encourage people to even ask questions, even if you don't feel like I'm not stuck yet. Um, I'm researching on topic X and I'm just getting started would you have any recommendation on the items to look at? Mm -hmm. Well, maybe you already knew you need to look at A, B, and C. And we might come back and say, look at A, B, and C. Well, we just confirmed, you're like, oh good, they're telling me to look where I thought I was already gonna look. And you haven't lost anything, and it actually gives you some confirmation you're on track. But then we also say, hey, you need to look at item D. And then you're like, oh, I wasn't aware of that, and, and we can move you into those items uh, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So I never think it's bad to just even ask initially, just so you know what's out there. Uh, uh, to get you know more nuanced research, and one thing that I'm going to put earlier in here, can, can you give us just a thumbnail sketch on the history of the law library? Um, I looked online this morning, saw that 1904 was when Creighton Law um, School came about, actually in conjunction with the Omaha Bar Association, which was an interesting tidbit that I didn't know beforehand, and. Um, I assume that there was something called the law library back then that was very primitive and, and how it's kind of advanced over the years as, as you know the history of the law library. Yeah, my, uh, my, from what I've seen, I believe there's been a law library since the entire time the school started. Of course, I'm sure that when we were very in the infancy in the first year or two, that was a probably just a literally cobbled together collection of statutes and major case books, some Blackstone commentaries, and um, uh, because the, you know, to actually know the law, since no attorney can ever, you know, know all of the law, uh, 
immediately the law school would have been, let's continue to gather material so that we're getting as complete a collection as we have available. And especially when, as you were historical, since you didn't have internet and didn't have electronic databases, if you couldn't get your hands on something, it was just, we don't have it. Uh, and so I, I believe a, a fairly a, a substantial collection was built up fairly quickly. Um, the, there was an article in the 1930s in the World Herald where they were looking at the law library. And now an odd statistic they did in there, they, they mentioned there were like 300 books for every student. And they kind of put that as like, they were kind of tying it like, oh, well, a student, boy, you, could never, you couldn't read 300 books. That's more books than you need. Well, of course, how many books you have per student is kind of a completely useless statistic because I need to know what are the books that have the law in it I need, not how many there are per person. But, you know, it was historical and they just looked at it a little different. Um, uh, but you know, definitely by the 30s, I think we had a very robust collection. And from what I've seen, I have a feeling that the collection of the law library probably rivaled uh, uh, any of the firms in town. Now, when you were historical and there was no electronic and firms had to be very dependent on what they had access to, I, I believe some of the firms in the 30s probably had some pretty robust collections also. Um, I wish, that's where it would be fun to time machine back. I would love to be able to walk into the large firms in 1920 and just go through their law library and just see what that looked like when they had like a working collection mm -hmm. uh, kind of item. Um, but then we've just continually evolved the collection um, up from that point. And um, I, I, to tie in, as some of the larger firms in town are actually downsizing their law libraries or getting rid of them altogether, which I've, I've seen over the past um, six, seven years, um, do, do they need to contact Creighton Law School to see if they want any of their collection? Is that something that you want those calls, or have you, have you had enough of people trying to dump their old law books? No, well, I'll tell you what, we always like to hear, because, um, for example, the Northwest Reporter, um, that is something we get, you know, as firms break up. And so many, I mean, that used to be the heart of to practice in Nebraska, you needed like the Northwest Reporter. Um, we see that come through a lot. Um, but we still occasionally have that there's a volume beat up. We still try to compare and we'll look at sets and say, oh, these volumes are better. And we would rather hear about it than not. The other thing is, uh, people do come with unique items in their collection and, uh, uh, you know, we add that in. And so it is nice for us to see what's there. We also do some things of uh, putting people in touch. Uh, I had a, a firm here in town just recently contact me and they were moving from one location to another. And for example, they were getting rid of their reporters and like their ALRs. Uh, well, um, I had some students that were gonna be starting offices that they knew they were gonna practice locally. And now, to be honest, the books, were they meant to be decorative in this new setting with these students, was about 80%. They would, they would write up admit, sure. I'm taking these books to be able to kind of decorate my office. But when I was talking to them, I encouraged this office had a lot of sets to choose from. And I said, you know, one of the sets is ALR, the American Law Reports. And I said, I'd recommend you take those because, you know, you could actually, when you do research, a citation pops up, 52 ALR third page number. You could be, that's on my shelf. And maybe you don't want to print it out. I mean, you can at least have the choice to actively use something that was in your office. Now, you know, on one level, that's not needed. But, you know, there may be a time where you just, you know, I prefer to have the printed item. And, and a small office, when you're, you have the actual expense of 
you know, an AL article is 70 pages long. If you print that, you're going to eat the expense. And so if you had the, the books there available, and uh, they also had a legal encyclopedia, which now the problem is when that's not being updated, it has some issues. But for example, if a client comes in and you were researching like something with contract law, if you had the contract volumes of Amjur, you know, contract law, enough of it doesn't change. Could you do some base level research by just grabbing the book off your shelf that was behind you? I, I think you could. Now clearly you'd have to update that, but you know you could use the items. So we try to connect people up if that's possible. Um, but we do like to see items because uh, uh, you know we we uh, e I mean even within the last month we've added items to the collection that came from local attorneys uh, that that brought things to our attention. And actually even um, one of the firms in town it, it was doing the downsizing. And uh, uh, we went and picked up items from them. And we clearly had a full collection of American Law Reports, but we just went through the process. We took all their ALRs, and then we went through and said, okay, their volume 52, our volume 52, which one's more beat up? Mm. And we just took the better of each one. And we basically cleaned up our collection by taking the better copies of theirs and infusing that into our collection uh, so that ours was a little more robust. Because back, especially in our volumes from the 70s, when you were in the 70s, everybody had to, uh, there was no electronic. And so like some of our books are really beat up because they got heavy usage. And you can really see in some of our copies that you know I had 50 students trying to use a book and they really show the wear. Where the law firm one got used, but not to the level that school did. So we would flip out copies. Yeah. So, so no, we encourage to see stuff. And at a bare minimum, we also can help uh, even recycle items. Even if we don't accept them, we can help them so that at the worst they don't end up in a landfill, that they at least get, you know, get turned into paper again and you're not sending law books to a, a landfill. And I have this crazy, it, it, I say million dollar idea, it's probably a, a five cent idea, but if there could be some really good artwork done with some of these, recycle into artwork um, some of these um, these books, you, you talk about them on the shelf as, as decoration, but there's got to be maybe some artistic interpretation that could take take them and, and put them in that, that direction. I'm sure it'll never happen, or my creative mind can't figure it out, but um, hate to hate to put them in the landfill for sure and at least recycle them. Absolutely. Yeah. I do have a little hobby of, uh, I'll go pull old case reporters and just read just the beginning of a case. Because the other thing is their, their, their history too. If I pull a case and read it from 1930, it's you know, clearly the laws from 1930, but also the history of the time. You get cases where uh, it's an automobile accident, but automobiles have only been around for 10 years. And so you see that history reflected in the case. And, um, and also just the how shocking. Um, uh, so I pulled a case, I think this was, was it 1910 or 1920? I was, we had some Pennsylvania reporters that just, they just had this kind of historic cue to them. So they, I was kind of drawn to, and I'm like, I pulled one, and I'm, and I'm literally pulling it random. I pull one volume, open it up, read this case, and it's about some janitor is in a union, and some union thugs show up to his house and kill him. So just out of a random, so they're describing, somebody knocks on his door, he answers the door, and they kill him. And I'm just picking a case at random, and instead of being some like boring contract case, here's this murder of a union <laughs> thing, and so it just shocks me about how, 
even just randomly looking the interesting things you find to a level that I never would have thought I would have found something that uh, kind of exciting is not the right word because someone was killed, but, but dramatic is sure. the better term. I didn't think I'd find something that dramatic just on a random pull of a volume. And what shocked me is when I go look at old items, more often than not, I, found some, I find things that are like, wow, that's really neat. So I do think there's a history component of it too. I think historians, now all these, all these reporters are electronic and historians can get into them that way, but I think there's a historical aspect of looking back at the reporters and you also capture items that nobody, you're, you were capturing the facts because of the case, but that you capture items that nobody maybe would have thought of to capture historically because they didn't realize the significance at the time, but the court case kind of forced the capture of it and now you have this historical record. Absolutely, I, I love hearing your passion um, for the books, for the collection. Um, it certainly makes me want to go just pull random random books off the shelf and start reading them here in the law library. Um, I, I also want to thank uh, you and Creighton Law School and the law library for housing the Omaha Bar Association for the last, oh, I, I, I think since we started in the, in the late 70s, uh, having an office and having a staff. Um, after we moved from legal aid, I believe, housed our lawyer for all service before we had an executive director. Um, but in the late 70s, 1980, we, um, we started here at Creighton, and um, thank you for allowing us to, to be a part of the institution. No, you're welcome. It's been great to have you here, and, and uh, you've been great guests in the law library, and, and we like supporting the local community that way. Absolutely.